So, what's landed for you? Any comments? Any questions? Any things you'd like to have reiterated? Any things you say? Oh yes, this, you know, you'd like to comment upon or add to that. About this drip, drip, drip experience, can we moderate it? Um, can it be influenced by others? Oh yeah. This is what um, Sankara. That turn, that steers. You see, so it formulates, but also steers. So, for example, it steers what you give attention to. That will definitely affect the trip for you. It steers what your ethical or your foundation is. That will definitely change it. You see something with a heart of compassion, it changes the picture completely. And also, because because there's no self, there's no isolated <coughs> self. The chitta is permeable to the influences of the world around. So you get mob, populism, you know, people, people find themselves adopting. Uh, obviously, just in terms of familial relationships, we adopt, we tend to be permeated by the energies and the attitudes of our parents, our culture, and, and that goes on. So one is actually a lot of the volitions, that, the attitudes and the volitions that we're maybe following, they've been implanted. And so most of it is actually implanted, not innate. Something good, something not good. When you were talking about Vedana, you said that things don't come into existence without formulation. In that context, it seemed like formulation was desirable. And yet, when talking about consciousness, it seemed like formulation was not desirable. Well, as a relative, and I might say an ultimate... (laughs) Um, pragmatism yeah I mean so the big picture is Nibbana the ending the stopping of consciousness the ending of the drip feed into just open awareness you could say I mean these are all just phrases but (laughs) the path involves definite distinct formulations conditions so the arrival at the unconditioned requires conditions so then in those conditions we've been formulating skillful conditions that ripen and pertain to liberation which of course compassion is one of them uh, so in our, when we're starting when we're in, in where we are yeah, then we do see things and uh, ignore things and uh, um, get fascinated and get frightened and get anxious so that's the reality of it so then Okay, let's well then turn your attention to things that negate or help you counteract the anxiety, such as loving kindness or compassion. That would be for your welfare, also for the welfare of anybody you bring into that domain. So, skillful conditions pertain across the entire field, so it's often very lightly said to myself as to others. But but actually, there's no real self, there's no real others, it's just the field. So, uh, so that means that that sense of uh, compassion will, will, will erase the formulation of indifference or callousness or blindness or ethical, ethical uh, nihilism, which is a negative formulation. And probably, at least I sense that compassion has less clinging than indifference where there is less solidification which is a movement towards the skillful. Yeah. 
I think, uh, okay, when it's indifference, I, my sense would be there's a pretty strong sense of self. You know, I don't want to know that, so what? Everybody has to do their own thing, I'm this. There's a sort of definite, quite a heavy and substantial sense of self. I'm ignoring things. With compassion, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do right now. I'm, I'm affected and I'm allowing that to be that way. So I haven't got a fixed conclusion. Um, I'm open. So this must lessen the formulation of a, of, a, of a solid, certainly not an independent self. And I think the problem with compassion is because no dhammas exist independently or can pertain independently, so the dhamma of compassion uh, will tend towards either moving to activation in a kind of compulsive way because it, it doesn't stand alone, or we can say, okay, then that has to be backed up by being grounded in the body in the here and now and recognizing you can't necessarily do something, but you may. So there's a grounding in wisdom. So that, that quality of compassion is held in the context of other skillful dhammas. No skillful dhamma occurs independently. They always be backed up by other ones. And unskillful dhammas also, you know, similarly, the difference depends upon perhaps a feeling of all kinds of personal history of ineptitude or who knows, it's a complex of psychologies that, that create people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, these are enormous. You know, because, I mean, the, the beauty of compassion truly doesn't actually have to have a solution purely in itself. It's a sense of there is that which is uh, suffering in, in, in the relational field, tell me more. Not fix it, change it, make it go away, what's wrong with you? No, why is it right? Tell me more. So it's a constant opening which requires the support of grounded presence to, to mean we can, we, can, we can manage it. The system can manage it. Now, what can occur for people is, I can't fix it, I don't see it. She's a problem. I, she's, no, she's not a problem, because I can't change her, so I ignore the fact that she's really quite a problem. <laughs> I can't do anything about it, so ignore that one. You know, it's dysfunctionality of that. If I find an answer, there's no problem. End of, end of that one. But there is a problem, but we don't actually experience that sense of, uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't know what to do. Yeah, just, okay, well, just, what about doing, first of all? That comes later and is possible, potential, but not guaranteed. Go to the basis, I can't sense groundedness, compassion, openness. I don't know what to do. But establishing that basis has an effect by itself. It lessens the agitation in the field. 
other people sense that and it tends to encourage a kind of calmness and groundedness in others so without doing anything the value of embodied heartful presence has, a, has a, an effect in the field mm-hmm. and this is isn't the case you know so, so often it's like you know, I've got a problem I need to talk to somebody da, 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 da. No, I don't want an answer I just want a listener mm-hmm. <laughs> if they answer me I feel frustrated because <laughs> I don't want to be told well you should do this you should do that because it's actually shutting, shutting me off I need to just hear that and that to be held in grounded compassionate presence and so mm-hmm. yeah uh huh yeah. Mm. Oh. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks so much. I feel much better now. <laughs> 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 now I know what to do. <laughs> you know, the person has to find out for themselves. But you're just offering that because in that, the field of that open awareness, there's a field effect. And those energies which we pick up help to each of us individually to moderate our own tangles. Yeah. And who else is going to do <laughs> yeah. Earlier you were talking about the search or the wish for certainty. Today I got the impression that to have permanence and solidity it's like a stone statue. The better alternative perhaps is managing and growing over the predictability of, I don't know what, of, of stone. Yeah, we crave certainty, but please don't let me get it. Because <laughs> 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 then I'll start getting rigid and dogmatic <laughs> and stuck, and they'll, I won't grow. <laughs> and you recognize any, anything you're certain about, it probably means there's a good amount of emotional projection going on. If I've got a fixed opinion about you, I mean, a lot of that's my stuff landing on that, right? So a good motto to bear in mind is the more certain it seems, the less certain it is. <laughs> because the certainty is coming from your projection, not from the reality. And that's really useful for some say, I know her, she's a typical narcissistic control freak. <laughs> well, I wonder who's speaking. <laughs> My irritation, my frustration, my lack of compassion, whatever, you know, get speaking. And if they weren't there, it was just, oh, well, hmm. You know, here we are, what's happening for this one? What can I be with? It's interesting, um, it reminds me of a story by Argentinian writer, Borges, B R G E S, Borges. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant, very, very beautiful short stories, extremely. Uh, carefully crafted. And one of them is called The Immortals. And it's about this, I mean, to cut it short, it's not a long story to cut it short, this traveller goes across a desert looking for the city of the immortals. And he's heard of this legendary city of the immortals. He, he can't find where the city is. He comes across the desert. He finds this kind of weird place where they've got kinds of unbuilt staircases that go up and stop in thin air and don't finish anywhere. And there's this 
city, which is all kind of corridors that end in dead ends and half-finished buildings and, and porticos and, and a weird place. It looks around the desert, these kind of funny old people well, it looked like there's some kind of people living in the dirt in the desert. These kind of grubby, squalid-looking people living in the desert. And he says one of them is just kind of falling over. Seems to be falling over, and the other people look on with complete indifference, noticing this. No, they don't do anything. Somebody's fallen down a hole, and they're just lying there, stuck in a hole. And nobody does anything. And then one of them looks up at him, and then, and starts speaking classic Greek from the time of Homer. He realized these people are the immortals. Because they never die, they don't bother to do anything. <laughs> because they never die, they don't bother to look after each other. <laughs> they don't bother to look after themselves. They're living in total squalor and pointlessness because because of immortality. And yet we, we we treat mortality as a tragedy. You know, you'll probably be dead in thirty years' time, did you know that? No, no, no. <laughs> Please, I want to live to be a hundred and you know. So certainty certainty damages the mind. I'm remembering what you said about existence, out of mind, out of sight. But there are times when holding someone in mind can feel very comforting for them and for you. You know, everything is potential existence. It's not that your partner doesn't exist. <laughs> it's just that at any given moment, there's a potential for them to arise if you turn your attention that way. So there's a potentiality. And we, uh, so our world is, our world is, is of potentials. Anyone can crystallize into actuality. Now, to handle that amount of potentiality without, you know, craving or aversion requires uh, quite a uh, strong and open heart. So I have a relative who has Alzheimer's, close relative who has Alzheimer's, so I never know quite what I'm going to meet if I turn up. But we turn up, because that's a relative. What does that mean? They're separate bodies? No, there's some sort of, you know, connectivities there, through history and through same, you know, same parents and so forth. So you don't quite know what's going to turn up. He's he's in the relational field. He's in my relational field. He turn up. And say, okay, now, if I turn up with attitude, I've got to either change him or fix him or prepare something. Things go wrong. You just have to turn up and open the heart and see what's possible at this particular time. Sometimes just a physical action, physical contact, engagement, or perhaps non-engagement. And that's very much a matter of just entering into the field, relational field, and then discerning 
when does the me bit start pushing in that? Or when does the me bit start retracting? I don't want to be here, it's a waste of time. You know, I'll go somewhere else, I'm not doing anything. When does that stuff get going? Try to stop doing that. Stop the me bit. <laughs> because it's a relational field, the me bit has to be balanced against the rest of it. Much of which I don't know. I don't know. I can't understand it. I don't know. But I do know that if I, if I know too much about what I should do or be, then the balance is lost. The compassion is lost. The empathy is lost. And it's, it's going to quiet. Stay open. And see what, what relational energies are possible. Follow it out from there. You see what I mean? But holding that space is quite... Um, takes a kind of effort psychological effort because one would want some, to do something or change something or, or worry about something stop worrying you know? so that's kind of that becomes a practice regarding the formation of not knowing when I have this experience of not knowing it's more likely to make me fearful uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, not, that's, that's, the, that's one of the reactions to not knowing. Not knowing what to do and what to be, what gestures you should make, whether it's acceptable or not, and gets very disoriented. Then that's what one should work with, okay? You know, rather than forget about that and tend to the other person. No, just work with that feeling of not knowing the discomfort widen your attention include your body breathing and use the jitta the heart's potential to just settle experience the unpleasant feeling of agitation and worry as a feeling just as a feeling Now, if we feel feeling is a feeling, feeling is an energy. It's a movement of energy. It plays, it jumps, it runs. Now, if we can forget the topic that we're worrying about, or the ideas of what we should be, and attend to that movement of energy, and just able to calm the energy, or cool the energy of it, so the worry depends upon a particular formulation of energy, which we'll go into later. The jitta formulates energy in terms of heart movements. It's called jitta sankara. So it's really very embedded. We worry, we get excited, we feel, uh, and then this energy crystallizes and drives us. It's jitta sankara, we formulate. Some of it's helpful. Some of it's not helpful, but if it's compulsive, it's always problematic, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, compulsive fixes get irritating after a while. You look to just stop fixing everything, just let it, get it go sloppy. I'm getting, it's making, driving me nuts, and then I'm fixing and changing and tidying that's going on here. <laughs> 
It's good, but it's compulsive, so you just have to rest. Doesn't matter. I don't like the energy, constantly. So that's, you know, the Sankara is the half formulations, psychological formulations. And uh, they create the identity. The person does this, the one who can't do that, the one who has to do this, the one who doesn't know what to do. The one who should know what to do, but doesn't know what to do. Therefore feeling inadequate, inept, clumsy, stupid. Stop. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to the energy. Then stop the topic, go to the energy and the feeling and and it helps to helps to clear the field of these obstructive influences. And for sure, sometimes it becomes apparent. Oh, yeah, that's obvious to do that. Sometimes it isn't. So you can't always do. It. Yeah. I'm not clear about vidya, veda, vedana, and how these relate to avicca. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the Sanskrit roots, you see. So I don't expect everybody to follow me into Sanskrit roots. <laughs> Not a happy place. <laughs> but, uh, see, you've got, uh, briefly speaking, you've got this Pali, which is uh, what's called a Prakrit. Prakrit's like colloquial vernacular tongue. Sanskrit, well, there's two kinds of Sanskrit, but... There's kind of classical Sanskrit, and then there's this kind of stuff that was when it's all preened up. So it's essentially a, a, a language that was considered sacred and could only be used for sacred topics, special classical language, and they worked out rules for it. Ordinary people spoke their local dialects. Mm-hmm. So, and then Pali is a kind of conglomerate of a various bunch of Indo Indian dialects. They've got a connection to Sanskrit, but they're not Sanskrit. But they, they have the same roots. So the root language is Sanskrit. And if you look at, so in Sanskrit, the word like vidya, V-I-D-A, in the dialect becomes vidya, V-I-G-D-A. So, do you understand? Well, what do you have? Vidya means clarity, and vedana means feeling. But they both derive from the same root, vid. Yeah, they both derive from the same root, vid which is the Sanskrit root. Now, vid in, in Sanskrit is the root form that then becomes Veda in the Sanskrit language. So roots don't actually exist as, as spoken terms. They're just linguistic um, foundations. So, um, God, I don't want to go into linguistics. But, so anyway, Veda was, was how that, that term... It, was used to define this is the knowledge, the Rig Veda, the, the various the four Vedas. This is the, all that can be known. This is the known universe. This is the cosmos, the known, the Veda. Now, if we go back to the root of it, Veda becomes Vid. And Vid can either become Vidya, which is uh, it's called clarity, or it can become Vedana, which is feeling. Vedana, if you break the word down, it means that which enables you to know. Vedana, that which 
make something known. So we translate that with feeling, which is not the best word, but you know, I mean, uh, sensitivity, you could say. It's a sensitivity, that which is, is touched, and we get that sense of, I feel that. Now, what I'm suggesting is that rather than clarity being a formulation of intellectual data, so, so, so to know something in this sense, it doesn't mean you've got a whole lot of intellectual data about it. It means you're tuned in and sensing it as it actually arises. Yeah, particularly because ignorance is um, classically defined as ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. So that's one of the ways in which ignorance is, uh, is explained. Ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. Well, if you say the Four Noble Truths over and over again in all their details, it won't give you... <laughs> It won't give you, it won't abolish ignorance because that's just the words. But ignorance of the Four Noble Truths means you haven't really penetrated the implications of the Four Noble Truths. The implications of the Four Noble Truths are essentially that the that dukkha uh, is conditioned by grasping at certain um, self forming tendencies which are birth, death, and aggregates, birth, death, uh, fundamental proclivity, craving to have something, um, not getting what you want. So the sense of the, how the identity is formulated. Um, so the, the clinging to that formulation causes suffering. And the release of that formulation ends suffering. Yeah. And so that's, that's the implications of the Four Noble Truths. Which um, okay, so um, you know, we look at those four noble truths. Birth is is dukkha. Well, that's a bit rough, isn't it? It means birth is incomplete. Birth is the beginning of being impacted, impinged upon, drip fed by consciousness, uh, growing up, changing clothes, changing school, friends coming, and going, paying. It's, it's a it's a birth into a a process of random chaos trying to make sense of it all and being impacted constantly by by stuff happening which ne- never gets completed it always is just stuff is knocking you around so this is birth is aging is dukkha the diminution of capacity sense faculties is dukkha and then death is dukkha, that which we held to as ourself passes away, or somebody else has passed away, that was him, he's gone, that's dukkha. Now those are facts of the conditioned realm, but, but the, uh, the penetration is, well, who's that? Who was that? And so the full way it's encapsulated is the formulation of, of the self-experience is down to what are called these five aggregates. And so with the uh, penetration of the five aggregates and the lessening of the craving with reference to that, there's a realisation called the deathless. Deathless. 
partner. Bodies certainly go through changes, but who's that? Feelings come and go, but who, who's that? Can there be no unpleasant feeling? No. Can pleasant feeling last? No. Can there be not wanting pleasant feeling? Difficult. <laughs> can there be resisting painful feeling? Difficult, really difficult. Can can we work upon aspects of it? We can try. I can at least work upon feeling, you know, agitated by the state of my tea or the colour of the wall. <laughs> Just so what? You know, lessening of the bonding and attachment to the sensory condition will certainly help diminish diminish the dukkha and diminish taking of the standpoint and diminish the sense of egotism. Those the implications of the Four Noble Truths. Yeah. If one's tuned into that, we may not have got it, but we know the script. When you start to see, when you start to get a sense, big sense of I am, this is the way it's going to be, you're just setting up the platform for some big suffering. <laughs> and it's possible to acknowledge the driving force that, that generated that, which was craving for certainty, craving for solidity, craving to own, to belong, to have, craving to protect, craving to, you know, you know get out of this conditioned existence. So if those cease, then uh, strangely enough, the turmoil of conditions also abates. Yeah. I'm struggling with the distinction between Sankaras and Dhammas. Okay. Dhammas is a more fundamental... um, As you can see, if you're going through... If we look at atomic theory, you know, go down to atoms... And you go down to, to electrons and neutrons, and you go even deeper, you get into wave potentials. So your wave potentials are dharmas. Right? When you get to the atomic level, you get into to sankharas. That means out of dharmas, sankharas almost are the... They're dharmas too, but they're the, they're the dharmas that activate the other dharmas to take form. I think they called it the Higgs boson particle or something. <laughs> they don't even know that exists either. <laughs> so, in other words, there's this kind of soup, you could say, or a soup of, of potentials, of which, which the potential to formulate potentials is part of it. So that, Sankaras are dhammas that have got agency in them. They activate, they formulate and would nimitta be related to that? Nimittas are perceptions. Uh, nimitta means a sign or a characteristic, such as the nimitta of beauty. We say things are beautiful. That's a nimitta, it's a sign. Are things beautiful? Do we all agree upon that experience of beauty? Probably do, but we might disagree on what we find beautiful. So it's it's not the thing; it's a sign. Okay, is that what that painting? Is that beautiful painting? Average. Who knows? Um, is the tree beautiful? I think it's got some beauty in it. But of course, the tree isn't itself; it's just doing its treeness. 
it's neither beautiful nor not, but the nimitta gets placed onto experience. So beauty is one also the opposite. The nimitta aversive, repulsive. Uh, um, so these, these are signs. And so these are all, and they're called perceptual signs. Now perception is the... Mm, mm, uh, is the immediate generic take on something so ah, uh, that's a tree that's a perception mm-hmm. so there's kind of treeness so it means there's some so there's programmed um, you know perhaps when you're first born you, you don't you can't program tree you know it hasn't established itself yet so those are perceptions and the limiters are kind of sort of overarching perceptions sort of perceptions about perceptions you go in you know, so we might say that's a tree and someone might say no it's, these are all those are all that's the genus of oak trees oh that's the that's the genus of evergreen oaks well that's a a 200 year old evergreen oak well that's a, you know so you can get more and more details on the perception and so limiters are acquired or, do, or arise in the heart, in the citta, when it apprehends a perception. That's beautiful, that's tasty, that's uh, glorious. Does that, does that make sense? That makes sense, but my mind wants to connect that process to Sankara. Um, well, it, it's, uh, let's go let's further down the line. Uh, so we look at the process of dependent origination it's not purely like a railway track like that goes that it's actually a skein that turns around itself it's not just a line it's it's not it's loops and one of the loops that occurs is sankara feeling and perception so perception uh, triggers particular volitional tendencies sankara precipitates formulations Formulations establish perceptions. Perceptions trigger formulations. Formulations establish perceptions. Because I've acted in that particular way, I've seen things in a particular way, I've now labelled that as desirable. And now because I've labelled it as desirable, I get a lot of desire when I see it. So it's a kind of reiterating feedback loop. And that occurs in in that term nama that will come across later so vijnana nama rupa that occurs in that term so where, where it occurs in this initial sequence of vijapachya sankara refers to almost like the very switching on of consciousness so you're looking at sankara a very preliminary state before we can have perception there has to be some consciousness to, to perceive things so, so the very activation of consciousness into the operating system arises to track a discernible world, which is then named. There's that's that. This is this. This is this. This is this. Uh, and um, right. And then, you know, so we we've named we've named our world into existence. And there's all things we haven't named that still exist. 
case. You know, I mean, obviously, off his example, say, I mean, an anthropologist walking through a jungle with a, a, a native of Papua New Guinea, they see five trees. The native person sees 73 different kinds of fungal growth and subtle leaf debris. Their world is much more complex. They see a whole lot more. They have names. Their, their named world is vaster in that domain than the anthropologist. Yeah. But if you reverse the positions, you know, you take a, some native of Papua New Guinea and put them in New York. <laughs> what's that? What's the? What's that? What's that? <laughs> the Sadducees have got no. What's a law? Where's the law? What's the law? You've broken the law. What law? I didn't see any law. That's that's a name, isn't it? I mean, look at a name like law or justice. They're very potent names. Very potent names. But who's justice? Who's law? Who created it? So name rules the world. Name formulates the world, name creates the, uh, the things we will be, we will be channeled along, channeled into. Yeah. Is it against the law to protest against fossil fuels? Well, it looks like it will be. When you look at in terms of ethical clarity, it's questionable whether that's actually a valid law. Maybe it'd be more lawful in terms of the cosmos to stop producing fossil fuels. <laughs> would be a better law if you widen the field to include the whole planet. I think it's against the law to do that. But it's not. It's not against the human law. Who created that law? Well, you know, go figure. <laughs> so that's a name. You know, you're a criminal because you broke the law, <laughs> and that could be a very potent name stuck on your on your records, your perceptions. Otherwise, formulated. Right? The basis of that is formulated. Fundamental formulation is human self-interest. And then that gradually narrows to a certain percentage of you know, certain, a certain degree of human self-interest that's been catered to through such programs. Yes, we've got cars, we've got phones, we've got this, that and the other. We've also got criminality, depression, addiction, violence, overstimulation, planetary exhaustion. Is that progress? <laughs> <laughs> but the formulation was always this is going to make our society, our culture better. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> and yet, whole picture changed the field of attention. And it looks like we just put ourselves in a really death spiral, put it bluntly.
Well, that's Nama. <laughs> yeah. My question is about movement or awareness or flow in emotion. You mentioned that Qigong has supported your practice, but is it not also a meditation itself, cultivating awareness, supporting presence? Sounds good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those terms. It's good to take that term and shake it around and see what falls out of it. <laughs> because any, any words tend to become ossified and they just become dead terms that we throw around. But actually, what are we talking about? Or why? Yeah. <laughs> Cultivation of skillful qualities is a good way of, of uh, looking at it. Direct, immediate, that which you can directly, immediately contact to cultivate skillful qualities. That would be one thing that I think we probably all hope to be doing when we call it meditating. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then you have systems and techniques to facilitate that. And the nature of systems and techniques is, for start, they're fallible. No system's ever worked, finally. Um, and so, you know, we have to be, get the balance of the system, what's the effect of it? Is it conducive to skillful dhammas? And what are skillful dhammas? Well, if we're looking at skillful dhammas in terms of Liberation, does it lead to release? Does it lead to fuller integration? Does it lead to cleaning out residues and stuck things? Does it lead to dawning of what we haven't realized that leads to greater integration and peace? These are all skillful dhammas. So, um, and I'm thinking to me, the Qigong taps into the understanding of the, the foundational presence of the body. Now, I'd like to say this as kind of as a fundamentalist, like body is the foundation, because I don't mm -mm, care for. No, but in terms of balance, you've got you've got body, you've got psychology, you've got, you know, and they have to find balance. And by and large, most people, brave statement, are much more psychological than embodied. So it's mostly, we say, where do you live? Pointy part of your body where you live. It's not going to be your knee, is it? It's going to be somewhere up here behind the eyes. I imagine most people live in a cabin behind, look out in the world through their eyes. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous, but that's what it feels like. Of course, all the energy is up here. So that state of imbalance, which is actually acting as your primary organ of apprehending the world. You're apprehending the world through an imbalanced state. That's definitely wrong fallacy so imbalance so energy so really getting to the sense of using recognizing that psychologies rest upon energies you know they're formulated from energetic potential we have to do thinking we have to strap exhausted through thinking yeah. we have attitudes that make us energies tight or bristling, or fluid. So, experience is an experience boils down to energetic movement. Now, the movement of body can act as a counterbalance to the movement of psychology and the movement of emotion. Ideally, we want to get all three: head, 
heart and body to flow in the same way. Yeah. Now the advantage of the body is the body does not do conceptual proliferation. It can't do it. The mind finds it very difficult to stop doing it. <laughs> conceptual proliferation, this and that, that could be this, and what about that? That goes, that's kind of like highly triggered. That's considered good. A good organizer. Yeah. What's happening to him? Or, you know, they're losing, uh, they're losing embodiment. They lose ground. They lose stability. They get exhausted, and then they are unable to fully apprehend. Really, know nothing can, can finally be organised. Everything is just dependent. So that sense of balance, you know, Qigong is a very, in my opinion, is a very good way to both being around bodily health and uh, psychological balance and it, it and uh, realization. So okay, so let's look at bodily health. I don't say Qigong is going to cure cancer or diabetes, but the amount of damage we do to the body's nervous system through stress and strain and overwork and addictive substances and putting trash into our bodies and not being able to, is powerful. You know, we soak ourselves in all kinds of stress chemicals. Yeah. And that's just a very simple example. And that's major cause of, of life loss is depression and anxiety. Up there with cancer. Now you don't have to do that, <laughs> you know. So the, the energy of driven, and the psychology has just toppled over into its own black holes, its own endless horizons. Needs to be energy. Needs to don't mess around. Don't complain about the psychology. Deal with the energy. Draw the energy back, and keep holding it back. So, so then the energy will then comes into the embodied system. It means certain aspects of the subtle nervous system, the fascia tissues, start to open up. We experience ourselves in a slightly different way. And that different we see the world in a different way. We feel our directives and obligations in a slightly different way. And we don't stress. That's the beginning of, of the you know, of a, of a healing of the energy body, of the subtle body, which again isn't even a piece of language in contemporary parlance, but the subtle body, the energy body, is a direct blazing reality that, that is happening all the time, and it's happening to us, and we don't acknowledge it, because we don't have a name for it. So it doesn't exist. It's just thought and meat. And a few emotions. No, it's all bound together in the subtle body, which is the energy body. Which is now, when you've got a term for that, Nama. Hey, what's that? All that got to do it. Got what's happening in my? Suddenly, I feel my chest is tightening up. This is this is a, it's obvious. But unless you get in touch with it, you don't know it. You think you can end it with your mind. 
and you go down that track and you can't. So, realization, healing the energy body. Okay. Qigong will help with that. It also helps in that uh, you recognize intention is no longer just, I want to do this, or I'm going to do this. That's an idea. Intention is that flash through the nervous system that jumps out. So it could be good, it could be a good idea or a bad idea. It's that flash when things light up and flash. Now that isn't occurring in in the void, it's occurring in your nervous system. That's going to send energy charging up and down. How much of that is good for you? And also, yeah, you have to do things, then you have to, for energetic health, you have to learn how to discharge. So, yeah, we've brought me far up, that's fine. And we also have to put in the time and the skills to learn to discharge the energy. Then you've got to something more healthy and livable. And Qigong is great for discharge. And you're starting to learn the proper language and the reference points and the management of the system that's powering your existence. Qigong will do that. In order to do so with Qigong, in particular, you say meditative, if you like to use that word, skills, you develop things like receptivity. Not too much drive. A little bit, not too much. Attention, wide. Receptivity, gentle attitude, lightness of heart. Don't get grim. Don't create programs you've got to achieve. So this is help really then seeing hey this makes me feel good and effective and, and so I'm getting results from you know, practical sense. And in your meditation outside it. So you've started to look at realise certain skills that then don't stop when you get off the cushion. You rewire you're changing your operating system. Mobility yeah. It's significant because there's nothing that isn't mobile. <laughs> if it's alive, it moves. It's breathing, that's mobility. The heart's pumping, that's mobility. Yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if you're not dead, it's mobile. Yeah. And uh, so, he, so, but then we get into locked state. you're rigid, locked that's a danger sign if you're losing, if you're getting rigid however good your intention is you're in dangerous territory because you you know, you lose, lose that access to mobility it means the wrong kind of drive is going to occur and generally the drive that occurs from the rigid state is power, push through get it done, no matter what got to achieve it, that drive and the, the heart becomes rigid Mobility, we play, we interact, we keep the potentials, we dance, we balance, we see what's possible, we move, we cooperate, we cooperate, we get together. 
that's mobility. Yeah. Rigidity means I'm doing this, you're doing that, let's get on with it. Yeah. So even in a good idea, that still we lose some of the joy, the potencies of, of interact, the interactive domain. We become machines. And unfortunately, that, there's, there's a strong socio-cultural push to make us into machines. Yeah, always regular, eight o'clock Thursday morning, bang. Done by this time, you know, good person, tick the box. You know, we spreadsheets, data, we become mechanized. Uh, and that has disastrous effects on the psyche. Now, Qigong, you're really experiencing, you get into it, you're experiencing everything is float. You know, you know, everything is, 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 is in float state. Could be this, it could be that we can float, we can float it, we can withdraw it, we move it. The movement can be very minimal, just like the movement of a breeze across a lake, just that rippling, but there's always movement. Yeah. Everything is moving. So that's, that's not something I'm imposing upon experience. That's what happens to experience when I stop imposing my plans and ideas. <laughs> But I'm saying, you know, I think it's possible to get enlightened without doing Qigong. <laughs> but Qigong, I find, is a helpful tool towards freeing up some of the constrictedness of my body, my emotions, and my, my ways of seeing things and keeping things healthy. I don't think more information is needed at this particular time just to, to digest what's been said and uh, considered uh, and obviously turn things over your own your own experience mm-hmm. to add too much more we just really touched upon the fact of conditionality the experience of dhammas dhammas being the moments the moments of actuality that bubble through um, and there could be strata of that so as was pointed out Sankaras are one stratum of, of the Dhamma field and they, they form the operating system and so, and they, they form something out of the soup they form a spoon out of the soup <laughs> but actually they're soup too <laughs> and uh, that's the nature of Dhammas Dhammas don't arise in singly they arise from a coming together of other dhammas so I see the tree because one, there is a tree or the appearance of a tree two, there's the act of attention three, there's a visual organ consciousness four, there's a perception that's a tree all those come together the experience of seeing a tree take any more away no tree, I can't see a tree. Uh, no visual organ, I can't see a tree. Visual organ, I'm not paying attention, I see the sky, I don't see a tree. No name for it, I just see a funny green blob. <laughs> so, that's all so those. Dhammas coming together create dhammas. Right? Every dhamma exists dependent upon other dhammas, and that's, that's the story of all of it. Uh, 
Conditionality, dhammas. Which are not being in touch, not attuning to, not being aligned to the implications of conditionality. Uh, that everything is fluid, flowing, impermanent, changing, and potentized by what what intentions and actions and attitudes go into it. The world gets formulated by our intentions and attitudes into entities that have the nature to break up and change and in that causing sense of loss, suffering and stress. That for the world were not formulated there would be the elimination of suffering and stress. Yeah. The process of formulating a world is not something that can be dismantled in one shot uh, or needs to be disbanded. But that itself depend the path towards that is also dependently originated and, and depends upon particular kinds of formulations and activations such as ethical integrity, sense restraint, uh, mindfulness, uh, and so forth. Mm. These dhammas have to come together to clear the blockages and the compulsive reactivities that tend to generate dukkha, not through one's choice, but through a blind reflex. This is the implications of the Four Noble Truths. Consciousness, remember, we use that word, it means the drip, drip, drip. Or in fact, the rainstorm of phenomena coming through six bases. Not just one, six. Of which the supreme base is the mental base because that determines what other field of consciousness will arise. If I'm into seeing things, I tend to not be tasting things. Into thinking things, I tend to not be tactile. So that shifting of the basis of consciousness is done by the mind. Mind consciousness determines which field I'm going to turn towards and focus. Mm. So that's, that's the six folds folding together of a, of a world. Mm. which mind is the predominant folder weaver of the world okay, so those are some points to summarise and um, take a breath <laughs> mm-hmm.